0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal budget is just a few days away and the Canadian Medical Association says they're hoping the budget will address the needs for primary care. What needs to be done to make it happen? Well, we'll talk about that. And a recent poll found that a majority of Ontarians feel that Doug Ford's response to COVID-19 pandemic has failed us. And many Canadians don't believe workplaces will return to normal until 2022. What's it going to take to get those workers to feel safe when it is time to return? That's coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know the federal budget is just a couple of days away right now. And uh, obviously, uh, we're looking for some sort of assistance uh, from the federal government when it comes to health care in this country. This is not a new problem, of course. It's been an ongoing problem. But uh, with his Liberal Party holding a virtual policy convention this weekend, the Prime Minister told reporters that he wants to fill what he calls the gaps laid bare by COVID 19. But he did indicate in his first budget in more than two years that he wants to focus largely on health care, jobs, and the environment. The pandemic
1: has highlighted and worsened far too many gaps in our society. That's something we'll keep working on to address. And as we do, we'll continue to stand up for what matters to Canadians, whether that's finding a good, well-paying job, staying healthy, or having our kids breathe clean air.
0: Let's talk about the healthcare element of this because it's obviously something that's front and center for so many of us because of what's happening with the pandemic. And to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Ann Collins. Dr. Collins is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back in the program today.
2: Nice to be here. Thank you.
0: I, I'd like to think that you have a voice at the table when they're deciding exactly where the money's going to be allocated in a federal budget. Uh, healthcare is always a contentious item, especially between the federal government and the provinces. Uh, I, I'm hoping, and I assume you are too, doctor, that these guys can lay their separate, uh, you know, uh, ideas and concepts and turf battles aside and g- work for the common good here. Because uh, if it was ever a time we needed unity and some assistance for the healthcare system, it's now.
2: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, and that's certainly something that CMA has been calling for on many issues throughout this pandemic. But to follow up on what you quoted the Prime Minister as saying, there is a huge gap in our healthcare system in access to primary care. We know that there are nearly 5 million Canadians that don't have a regular family doctor, a regular primary care provider. And so that uh, and and that is an issue that was there long before the pandemic, uh, has been exacerbated by the pandemic, and uh, it is really it does need to be addressed in the context of the pandemic uh, and beyond. Uh, it's critical for people to have uh, a doorway, an entryway into the healthcare system.
0: Well, in failing that, you, we have, I guess, two options. Neither one of them are very palatable. One is people don't bother, uh, which means if they get sick, they get really bad. Uh, and, and, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, what could have been treated as, as a, a, well, initially, of course, in the early stages of any sort of a condition, medical condition, is only going to get worse, which means the treatment is going to be much more intense and much more costly uh... the other element is they show up in the ER and uh, how many times have we had discussions over the last year now doctor about how overstretched and how uh, problematic it is in a hospital setting right now because of the influx of patients
2: well absolutely and I mean uh, our ERs are, are wonderful for providing e- emergency care urgent care and that's what they're designed and intended to do they're not meant to be uh, a source or a site for primary um, access to care uh, and, and so many Canadians have no alternative but to seek that out or or walk-in clinics, after-hours clinics, virtual care has been some help. And you're right. It, the, people need continuous care. They need to to be able to go to a person or a team who will listen to their symptoms, address them, arrange follow-up, testing, and so, and so on, so that... It's as as smooth a course as possible that someone's looking after them and that they don't have to be the sole navigator working their way through the system. How
0: does how does that look, though? What Because uh, we've talked about doctor shortages for generations now, sadly, uh, and not just about the number of doctors, but, of course, we know that some of the doctors in the field for many, many years are retiring simply because of, of age. Uh, and, and there's many, many areas of the country that are not being served properly by, by fam- primary care physicians and by family doctors and things of this nature. Is it a matter of funding, or do, is there something else that's missing in, in this equation? Well,
2: funding is certainly an issue, but we know that... Um Physicians who are completing their training now are, are looking for um, a team-based model so that they are working with other physicians, with nurse practitioners, nurses, social workers, um, dietitians, so that it's, it's a, um, a combination of multiple services so that each professional is doing what they do best and in a coordinated fashion. That's what's desirable uh, to younger physicians, and in fact makes sense for patients as well, that you have coordinated care um, as much as possible. Also makes it uh, much easier for our specialist colleagues uh, if they have a patient coming to them that's well worked up and that they do not have to do primary follow-up care themselves, that frees them up as well to see more, more patients uh, in consultation.
0: All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room, and you mentioned it briefly, of course, right at the beginning of our conversation, uh, and that's the the discussion and the relationship between federal and provincial governments, which has been controversial ever since, uh, I guess, our Medicare program went into effect back in the mid-1960s. Back in those days, for people that may not know, uh, the costs were split 50-50 between the provinces and the federal government. It's it's not that way anymore. Uh, The federal government doesn't contribute nearly as much, but uh, there's some talk now that, that that those numbers may increase slightly but we're getting into jurisdictions now uh and and I know that you're going to get stuck in the middle of this doctor with the, in the medical you know the the CMA uh the provinces are simply saying to the fed just give us more money we'll decide how we spend it because we know it's best with our systems uh the federal government would like to put some sort of parameters on that He said you don't get the money unless you spend it here 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 and here uh and there has never been much in the way of an agreement how can we facilitate something like that because there's got to be some middle ground here uh... You know because the absence of of an agreement you know the money's not going to flow to the proper places that's what it comes down to
2: yeah exactly and certainly the context of a pandemic if if nothing else should uh, work to bring governments together in a collaborative uh, and coordinated fashion and and unfortunately in many instances we have not seen that to date but, from CMA's perspective, what has become a lightning rod in this pandemic, certainly the first wave, was around seniors' care and mm-hmm. really the abysmal um, conditions in many situations, and the tragedy is the result of that. So we are, in fact calling for uh, standards uh, for uh, you know transfers that are tied to outcomes. there It is one area in in the healthcare care system, just one area where there needs to be more oversight, um, standards, and, and so there, there may well have to be uh, ties to that money that's transferred. We also know, though, that the provinces cannot do this on their own, and we are also supporting uh, an increase in the CHT, the health transfer to those provinces that are dealing with rapidly aging demographics. stands to reason the older we get that our health care needs and requirements increase, So there still has to be, though, um, that yin and yang between the the, the federal and the provincial governments. At the end of the day, it's got to be what's best for the person, the patient, the Canadian on on the receiving end of health care.
0: Uh, There's another topic to this that I know your association is looking at right now, which I find fascinating, and and that's, uh, well, seniors care benefit. Now, we already have the the Canada Child Benefit, of course, which is supposed to help young families and, and some of the expenses that go on, and there are checks that go out every month for that. Uh, and what we're talking about here, and what your your association is talking about, is a seniors care benefit uh, to help anybody who's caring for seniors to defray some of the out-of-pocket expenses. Now, some provinces offer tax credits for that, which doesn't really help a whole lot, that you know you get that at the end of the year, I guess, when you're doing your taxes, but it doesn't help you on a monthly basis. Uh, is is I know that you're looking into this right now. Is there an appetite for the federal government to consider something like this, too?
2: Well, we've certainly pushed that as one of our pre-budget requests because you're absolutely right. Um, tax benefits are, are, are a good thing, but it's much better, as we all know, to have cash in your hand. And so uh, we know that so much care, uh, seniors' care, is unpaid care, uh, many hours a week provided by family members or friends, neighbors. Um, and so this is—you're right. It's it's. To, modeled after the scaffolding of the child tax benefit to help those providing care to seniors for out-of-pocket expenses and that it be something tangible, that it be something that can help them now and not at the end of tax season.
0: Well, as we know, uh, you ask anybody, I'd say probably 99.9% of people would rather age in their homes as opposed to having to go to a facility. Uh, and if that's at all possible, of course, you're going to have to do that with family assistance, but there are there are costs to that. So uh, we'd like to see that. I'm going to ask you to weigh in on something else. And I know you're <laughs> you're, you're not shy about doing this, Doctor, but I want to get some clarity on this because uh, we're talking about paid sick days here in the province of Ontario and actually right across the country. Uh, and uh, every time it comes up, especially I I'll relate to the Ontario Association here and the Ontario uh, conundrum that we find ourselves in. The Premier simply dismisses it and says there's a federal program, we're not going to put anything into this. Uh, and to a point he's right, it, there was a federal assistance program, uh, but there are so many gaps in this and so many holes and so many different qualifications, it does not work for everybody, uh, which is why your organization and so many others right now are are advocating that the provincial government step up. How's that going?
2: Again, a, a new kind of a new initiative for us, but an essential initiative. These essential workers have kept us going essentially over the last uh, 14 months now. And you're right, there are federal programs, but again, it's it's deferred. These uh, very critical people to keeping us going need to know that if they have to go today to get a vaccine or they're not feeling well and they need to stay home and get a COVID test, they have to know that they'll be paid soon, like maybe in their next paycheck or the one after that, not weeks down the road. They're often working in low-paying jobs and supporting large families. So that's why it's critical that uh, governments, uh, industry, employers look at how they can, in this, again, this context of a pandemic, how they can better support those critical workers, along with other job place protection like ppe so um you know this is you're you're talking you're in ontario it's critical right now that this um that they be protected
0: well and and we need to get into the logistics of this and, and and i know the premier anytime anybody brings it up whether it's your organization or people like me uh we're accused of simply playing politics and i should maybe remind our listeners that uh, the the paid sick days program was actually a program in ontario and it was canceled by the ford government a couple of years ago as a cost cutting measure so i mean who's playing politics here let's let's cut to the chase here uh it's something that's that's quite necessary here because one of the reasons, and we could talk, I guess, for the next three hours here, doctor, about the, the startling number of new cases that we've had this past weekend, especially here in Ontario. It's, it's scary to see the way that these, these viruses are starting to spread all over again, uh, is that people are going to work when they're sick. And that's all there is to it because they can't get the time off because they don't get, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid. Uh, and, and that's causing an awful lot of the spread right now. But the government seems oblivious to this, uh, especially when there seems to be a solution right in front of them
2: well certainly governments are under a lot of pressure you and i both know that i don't envy them that but um these variants have changed the game they have upped the game tremendously uh, and they're much more transmissible they're much more transmissible in these populations of essential workers for example in food distribution sites grocery stores uh transport so not only are is the paid sick day um initiative essential for these people to protect them it's really to protect everyone to reduce the transmissibility of the virus so and of course we all know this virus is not political it it doesn't know what color uh you know tie you wear um it it transgresses all boundaries and borders and and again that's why we have to nothing should be off the table here to get this virus contained and controlled
0: and this is not Something we're talking about doing, you know, forever and a day. I mean, this is to try to get us over the hump right now. I mean, you know, we, we're looking at, at the new number of cases here, and basically, we're saying, how can we curb this? How can we stop this? Uh, and you've just identified, I think, one of the key areas here. You know, these, you know, uh, warehousing and manufacturing centers where people are going to work, and, and a lot of the minimum wage jobs, and, and the federal program just doesn't. Uh, fit with what they're doing right now. And even those that qualify, uh, we're hearing stories that sometimes it's four or five weeks before they, they can even get that assistance if they do qualify for it from the federal program. And uh, and that's that's a month that they're not getting the kind of money that they need to pay their bills and feed their families. So uh, you'd like to think that there's going to be a discussion on that. And uh, and I, I know that you, as well as everyone else now, are just going to wait and see exactly what the federal finance minister, uh, Minister Freeland, is going to bring up on the budget. But uh, you'd like to think that they're going to check a few of the boxes that you and your organization have talked about?
2: Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, it's there are so many moving parts to this pandemic. Uh, we need to do all that we can um, to pr- protect people, to control, uh, you know, protect the, in, the, in, in the economy. And we have to remember those folks, particularly in the hot spots right now, that are on the front line, that are in these ICUs, that are having are going to have to make some very critical and serious decisions um we it, we're at a, a point now where uh, all stops need to be you know pulled and and do everything and to continue to do everything that's the other thing here don't lift these measures until there's assurance that it's safe to do so so back and forth the flip-flopping that's half measures don't work uh canadians lose confidence they are tired already uh we need to do bolster everybody's resolve to do what we can to do our part to do what's essential um, at this point in the pandemic it's a new game
0: it certainly is, and it's uh, the long game, too. We have to understand that. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the great work that you and your organization are doing. Uh, we'll stay in touch over the next little while.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: To you. Dr. Ann Collins, of course president of the Canadian Medical Association.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: As we were uh, just discussing uh, with Dr. Ann Collins, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, there seems to be some eroding confidence in government officials uh, with some of the decisions and some of the policies that they're bringing forth to try to, to battle this virus, especially the the variants in the pandemic. Uh, we had a record number of new cases this past weekend. Uh, yeah, the vaccination program is rolling out, and yeah, we need more vaccines but uh, there's a lot more going on than just that and i guess recent polling seems to indicate exactly how frustrated we are getting right now uh angus reed poll that was uh, done uh, just after the ford announcement last week actually shows that only 32 percent of people that were polled think that the ford government's doing a decent job That's down from 55 percent just before christmas and they also say uh 61 percent of respondents uh told angus reed that uh, th- what measures the Ford government has put in place don't go far enough to try to curb the spread. So why the, the the problem, and why are we not having the confidence in the government? Well, maybe what happened a couple of days ago might shed some light on this for us, is one of the overriding questions that we've been asking on this program for a long time right now is why didn't the government act sooner? Their science panel months ago recommended a lockdown and, and, and stay-at-home orders, uh, and the government instead actually started to reopen things and all of a sudden the numbers spike and now we're into a lockdown situation. Well uh, CBC Ottawa host Robin Breshnahan asked a a, a member of the cabinet uh, Sylvia Jones who was the solicitor general for the province of Ontario what took so long.
2: Why did you wait until after the Easter weekend? We wanted to make sure that the uh, the the, the modeling was actually uh, showing up in our hospitals.
3: We've seen that now.
0: So just digest that for a second. Basically, what the minister is saying is they wanted to wait and see if all those dire predict- and projections that, that, that the science panel was talking about were actually going to happen. And once they started to happen, in other words, once the avalanche started, then they decided to respond. I mean, really? This is leadership? I mean, it's no wonder that there's there's a concern here about the sorts of decisions that are being made. And we're seeing that not just here in Ontario, but right across the country. Uh, polling in province after province after province uh, is saying, okay, we're not so crazy about the kind of leadership we're getting here. Joining us to talk about this is Andrew McDougall. Uh, professor McDougall is a political science professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: No problem. Pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, I I know that, uh, especially when we're dealing with something like a pandemic and and the variants and everything that's going on, uh, I guess the the public opinion of of elected officials is going to ebb and flow, uh, depending on how the vaccine program and everything else is going on right now. But when we see this apparently out of control, uh, we look to these people for leadership, don't we?
3: Yeah, I mean, throughout the pandemic, of course, people were looking to their elected leaders to try to get ahead of this. Uh, and you're absolutely right that over the course of this, we've seen a little bit of uh, of ebb and flow in terms of the, the political support that they were getting. Early on, there was very clear support, like high level of support for our, the incumbents, which is not hugely unexpected during an emergency. They're in a position of leadership. Everyone's looking to them, and so you tend to see their their numbers go a little bit higher. And we've seen that with the Liberals. We saw that uh, here, here in Toronto with uh, with the mayor and, and with, with um, uh, Premier Ford. But, of course, the longer that this goes on... Um, more and more questions start getting asked and people start evaluating the policies that are being introduced and how effective people are doing. And people are at this point, I think, becoming a little bit tired of this. And there may be, you know, some splits over whether or not we need more measures or whether or not we need fewer measures. But I think everybody is really looking forward to having this, you know, come to an end. Uh, And I think we're seeing a little bit of skepticism from the public now at the, at the, at the political leadership as they're really sort of evaluating, you know, how good a job they're doing in in their view.
0: Part of that's human nature, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been working from home since, well, last March, over a year now. Uh, many others I know are in the same situation. And uh, the longer this drags out and the more frustrated we get, uh, we basically I think we, we start looking for somebody to blame, don't we? Uh, and I know, you know, the virus is the culprit here. We get that. But we're looking at other jurisdictions and say, wait a second, these guys seem to be handling it okay. How come we're not doing that here? How come we're still working from home? How come I'm wearing the mask and I'm social? distancing and I'm doing all that sort of stuff and the numbers keep going up and eventually you gotta say well maybe it's the guys that are deciding on the policy here.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean politicians are always in the crosshairs when it comes to the blame that people want to to attribute to the things that they're going through. And you're absolutely right. I mean the real sort of enemy here is the pandemic and you know in many ways oftentimes there's nothing really the politicians can do or do more than, than what it is they're doing to try to get ahead of a crisis like that. But it is a political reality that people will still blame politicians if they don't feel like things are going well. And, you know, I mean, as you've pointed out, now that we've entered sort of into the second year of this, uh, it's perhaps unsurprising that politicians are getting a little bit more scrutiny than they did at the beginning of the crisis.
0: There's an old moray that I learned a long, long time ago when I was in municipal politics uh, that I still think holds true, and maybe it's reflective of what we're seeing right now, is politicians probably get far too much credit when things go well and probably far too much blame when they don't, because there are some things like this or even a, a global economy that are well beyond their control, but at the same time, uh, they're the ones that are in the crosshairs, as you mentioned.
3: Yeah, I have heard that that too, and and I think nearly every elected politician shares that that view that you know they never get the credit that they feel that they deserve, and they get the blame that they feel that they that they don't deserve. Um, and, and then I think, again, that that's just kind of a reality of, 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 uh, of politics. But, I mean, you, you know, you were saying about how earlier, uh, you know, there was the, a lot of people, uh, you know, in that poll suggested that, you know, the Ford government should go further and do more in order to introduce measures. But if I remember from that poll itself, it was actually just before we had this new lockdown measure that had come in. Mm-hmm. And, some of these further restrictions and then the polling had kind of cut off before that had happened so there is certainly a level of responsiveness to uh to these polls i think and, and politicians are watching very closely and trying to to read the tea leaves um but i mean it could be difficult uh you know to convince people that you know they really are getting you know the best political leadership that they can get and of course in a democracy you are supposed to sort of look around and ask you know what other people are suggesting we do and what are the uh, other alternatives and of course you know sooner rather than later we're going to have an election and, you know, the Ford government is going to have to justify the course of action that it took as being the right one uh, to have taken. And and there are going to be people that are going to come back and suggest that maybe, you know, a, a different path might have been better, maybe one with more restrictions. Um, some will say maybe maybe fewer. And the Ford government is going to have to justify the decisions that it made.
0: And, the I mean, the heat's not just coming from uh, pollsters or people that are responding to polls. I mean, it's it's the medical experts, some of the members of the science panel, of course, that the, the Ford government has, has – uh, struck are, are actually some of the ones that are speaking out about this, uh, which only adds fuel to the fire, I guess, when we say, hey, wait a second, these are the experts and they're, you know, they're saying well, this this is not the way we should have gone in situations like this. Uh, and the longer this draws out, I guess, the more angry we're going to become. And, you know, when we see, start seeing the numbers of ICU and now elective surgeries being canceled once again, uh, I, again, the human nature of uh, is basically saying, look, can somebody please put an end to this? Uh, because we thought, let's face it, if we go back to last March, Professor, we, th- we figured five, six weeks maximum, you know, then we'll get this thing under control. And, it's yeah, it's going to be a problem, but we're going to ride this out. Well, you know, it's not happening the way we had hoped it was going to happen.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I think when they closed down my office, I think the suggestion was that we would all have to be home for two weeks. And then, of course, you know, we realized that it was going to be sort of a lot longer than that. I mean, it's a very real, uh, you know, fact that people have, this is the once in, in a generation pandemic and people have not lived through it. And so the expectations, I think, a little bit reflect that, um, that, you know, people are still try- kind of coming to grasp with how big of a crisis that this actually is and trying to measure up how political leaders are, are doing in the face of it. Uh, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that one one issue that the Ford government is facing is that they're getting, you know, advice from uh, a lot of the you know scientific community um you know that really clashes with you know some of the uh, some of the reality of the politics on the ground right the desire by some people to reopen uh you know is not in keeping with with um, with what a lot of uh, the uh, uh you know the health experts are suggesting and so the Ford government is trying to as much as they can get a balance between those two competing narratives that they've got um but they're not always successful in doing that and especially when you start seeing you know case counts rising and elective surgeries being cancelled you know, there is this sort of tendency to say, "Well, look, you had, you know, your, your experts that suggest this was going to happen. How come you didn't take into ac- that into account at the time?" And I think there we see a little bit of um, pressure on the conservative numbers here, where people are suggesting to them, or are you know, thinking you know, maybe there was a better way to handle this. Uh, you know, in the face of some of these other uh, experts that are, are giving the government advice
0: professor what about uh, the policies themselves but if you look at this as a whole uh, one of the things that i've heard from an awful lot of people that are frustrated uh, is is the inconsistency in a lot of these policies you know we're going to open up no we're not going to open up we're going to open the schools no we're not going to open the schools restaurants you can have uh, you know half capacity and no now we're going to shut you down you can't do indoor capacity uh, you know it, it creates the impression i guess in an awful lot of people's minds that you guys don't know what you're doing you're just throwing darts at the board here and you're not quite sure what you're doing Doing it, there doesn't seem to be a game plan here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly something that's feeding into the problems that the that a lot of incumbents are facing right now. Uh, I mean, they're doing their best they can to get the you know the numbers down under you know a level of sort of under control, and, and they tell you know, the population that look, as long as we get the numbers to a certain level or we get them down, we can begin to reopen up a little bit. But of course, the reality is as soon as you do that, it starts popping back up. Mm-hmm. And this can create a huge amount of frustration, I think, certainly in the part of, you know, the sort of a small business community and certainly people who are, you know, trying to figure out whether or not they're going to send their kids to school or not. When, you know, they start to organize their uh, affairs in light of what they think is going to be sort of a return to normal, or they've been told that, you know, this is the way the situation is going to be going forward. And then to suddenly have the rug kind of pulled out from under them. Um, you know, we've we've read stories about small business owners who have you know bought a lot of product, you know, in the plans of reopening a patio, for example, and then suddenly told they can't do that. And naturally, that's going to create you know a lot of frustration on the part of of that uh, of that community when when they're in that reality. But you know, I mean, at the same time, you know, the, the the Ontario government is not in control of the the epidemic, right? I mean, they can do the best that they can um, to a degree, and there's an argument whether or not they are. Um, but, you know, they have to respond to, you know, the numbers and the case counts as they emerge. And they kind of have to you know, move in directions they often may not want to in the face of those realities. So it is very, very frustrating. But I think the question is also, what else can you really do if, you know, the epidemic suddenly starts spiking?
0: The other element to this too, and, and this is very much, I think, a part of politics. And maybe more so than it has been in any other generation, is messaging. In other words, it's not necessarily what you're saying; it's how you're saying it. Uh, and, and as you say, despite their efforts, and, and we can just, you know decide whether they're good or bad efforts, uh, you know the numbers continue to rise, and that's making us even more frustrated. But there are some political leaders, and, and the premier, Premier Ford's done this from time to time too, essentially pointing the finger at, at, at the public and saying, "You people aren't doing what I told you to do." You know, you you. You know, and, and in other words, like you're the ones that are causing these things to go up, uh, and and there's a large number i would say probably the majority of people are saying wait a second i'm wearing the mask i'm social distancing i'm not you know hanging around and and going to rallies and trying and so don't blame me for this uh and it causes a certain resentment i think i mean there's there's something to be said i think for a little bit of you know uh political you know humility sometimes to say you know what i i I, we didn't get this one right but we're going to do this i think this is going to work better as opposed to saying well it's because you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do
3: yeah. And I mean, it, it, generally, it's not a good strategy to blame the public when uh, when things go wrong. If you're a, if you're a politician, I mean, to to a degree, um, you know, uh, the premier is right that this is the type of crisis where we're all, you know, it, some of the obligations on all of us right, to stay home, mm-hmm. social distance, wear the masks, and, and follow the advice of health experts, and try to get get control of all of this. And, you know, he does. He, he wants to to reemphasize that message so that that people do that. Um, but, of course, you know, people sometimes have been, you know, suggesting that the Ontario government could do a little bit more uh, to sort of make that happen and to help people make that happen. For example, uh, you know, doing a, a stronger lockdown, ensuring that there's no, you know, uh, indoor dining and, and you know, other related sort of measures and, you know, closing big box stores and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I think a level of frustration is is that you know, you can't really ask people to do that while creating all these opportunities for them to kind of violate those health r- rules or to sort of suggest uh, that they that they can um, and so i think a little bit of the frustration does come out of that with you know the inconsistency and and the lack of clarity to a degree about what um, you know is best practices and what can be allowed and what can't be allowed and especially when that changes on a on a fairly routine basis where people start you know organizing themselves in a way with a certain, expecting to be able to do certain things, and then suddenly find that, that they can't. Uh, and then, you know, of course, they look to the Ontario government and ask the question, you know, how come you didn't see that coming earlier? mm-hmm
0: let me ask you something with you in your experience professor how long are we going to be angry uh I, you know this the Angus Reed thing of about 32 percent you know as i say that that could go up or down in, in the next week depending on what's going on with the new numbers and and the vaccination program we get that but uh your, your point's well taken i mean we're a little more than a year away from the next provincial election and uh, as you mentioned the ford government's going to have to answer for what they've done and they're going to have to stand by their record as to what's gone on here uh, do we forgive and forget i mean in, in the past it seems oftentimes uh, voters have pretty short memories when it comes to being frustrated by the time the election rolls around or is this something that's going to stick with us
3: yeah i mean i don't like everyone else this is my my first major global pandemic of this scale so i mean yeah. the, the political tea leaves are are as uh, unclear to me as they are to, to everyone else uh, I mean, I think, you know, in my own personal view, a great deal of this is going to rely on the uh, on the vaccines right now. I mean, I think people are kind of frustrated with the, the lockdowns and how those have changed. And everyone's kind of looking to this vaccine program as being a long term solution to this. So to the extent that that becomes a success, I think that that's going to reflect well on the incumbents, both federally and, and provincially. Um, you know, if people say, OK, that was handled well under the circumstances, and you're absolutely right that a lot of times this, this sort of political anger can fade over time, you know, as, as the situation changes. Of course, if that uh, does not change or if people are dissatisfied with the the vaccine rollout, I think that's going to play a very big role in, in people's calculation as we're as we're coming up to it. Um, but, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, there is always, you know, for, for political leaders that are in charge during a crisis, there is often a tendency sort of looked at them for leadership. So there's opportunities, I think, for the Conservatives to, um, you know, regain some of the momentum here, and especially because there's not a lot the opposition really can do right now. I mean, they've got to essentially hammer the, uh, the Ford government on a lot of the, um, uh, you know, a lot of the policies that they've uh, adopted. But, you know, they've all sort of taken the view that, you know, the, the people that are in charge right now need to be given some space to, to manage this crisis. So you know, I think there's risks ahead, certainly for the uh, for the provincial government, and I think a lot of that is going to be connected again to these vaccines. Um, but you know, I think the the next election is still very much anybody's game uh, when we're looking that far ahead.
0: And again, you know, we could use those same criteria, and I guess, for the federal election, whenever that's going to be, probably sooner than later. It's for sure, probably going to be before the, the provincial election next June. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, it depends on the mood that we're in. I mean, if we're still not going to ball games and we're still not going to movie theaters and, you know, uh, they're still lining up to get into the grocery store and things of this nature, we're, we're going to want to take it out on somebody, aren't we?
3: I, mean, I think that's a, that sounds like a reasonable, um, you know, perspective to take that we may we may very well. But then again, you know, these are also the people that we've come to know over the course of the pandemic, too. So there's always a possibility that they will have a lot of support from people that still trust, you know, the people they know rather than the people they don't So I think it's a really open question and a really interesting question to see how the electorate responds when they're suddenly back at the ballot box. Uh,
0: Always uh, great to get your perspective on this. Uh, Thanks for spending some time for us today. Uh, Professor, really do enjoy it. We'll stay in touch and uh, we'll watch the bouncing ball and just see what the polling does over the next couple of months.
3: (laughs) No problem. It was my pleasure.
0: Take care. That's a Professor Andrew uh, McDougall, of course, a uh, professor at the University of Toronto.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I
0: want to talk about work and work environments. Uh, as we mentioned in the last segment, uh, we many of us, of course, have been working from home for a long time now, starting last March, of course, for many of us, and uh, we were told that uh, maybe a couple of weeks, five, six weeks maximum, and then everything should be back to normal relatively anyway. Well, it's not happening that way. Uh, so how are we holding up, and, and what's our, our, our mental state like, and are we concerned about where we're working and the safety environments within that? Well, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce has uh, commissioned a study about this uh, with Abacus Data uh, completed some polling for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce with some uh, rather insightful uh, ideas as to where we are uh, about working from home or working within the workplace. Joining us to talk about this is Mark Agnew. Mark is the Vice President of policy for the canadian chamber of commerce uh mark a pleasure to have you back in the program thanks so much for the time today thanks for having me back it's good to call you from, ba- from my basement once again <laughs> yes indeed uh working from home and as as we always said you know we thought this was just going to last for a little while uh, I, I guess uh, i want to get into some of the specifics here but I, uh, overall how are we holding up uh, through this whole thing is this is as, as the survey said this is new for a lot of us
1: yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And I, I think the way in which folks are holding up, uh, you know, does does vary, um, whether or not you've been going uh, into the office. And so folks who have been going in, into work, I think have become quite uh, customized to the new ways of, of doing business and the new measures, whether that's masks and regularly sanitizing and being distanced and having partitions. Um, I think folks that aren't going into the office right now, they're probably a little more reticent about, um, you know, about a potential return. So I think they haven't had a chance to see the measures that a lot of employers have worked hard to put in place. I think what is really interesting actually is about future expectations. And around that, certainly a lot of Canadians, and as you would have seen in our um, data that came out last week, four to five more specifically, don't think that we're going back to normal until 2022, which is still Mm -hmm. at this point about uh, seven and a half months away. I want to talk about some of the numbers because
0: some of this stuff really caught me off guard because I think a lot of us are under the impression that there's this great big huge exodus of people from the workplace uh, last year or from whenever that company may have started this. And, you know, we're all working from home, the overwhelming majority. Uh,
1: about half of us are still working in the, in the work environment, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, because there's a lot of folks that just don't have the option of doing their job remotely. So whether you're in a customer-facing environment, or whether or not you have to go into the office to physically, you know, write checks and and process payroll. Um, There's a lot of companies, particularly who are on the smaller to medium-sized end of the spectrum, that haven't fully been able to digitize for, you know, cost reasons or perhaps um, others. And so, uh, not everyone has uh, has that option, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're absolutely right I mean we've
0: talked about some of those environments uh, whether they're warehousing or whatever the case might be I mean it's just logistically you can't do that Uh, and so but some of us have and and those numbers are rather interesting too Uh, 51% as we said but one in two Canadians are still going into the workplace right now 12% are splitting their time between the workplace and working from home and only 36% are actually working from home full-time that never surprised me I thought it was going to be a lot higher than that
1: yeah, we actually were quite surprised by, by that too. But then, when, when we sat down and started kind of, you know, crossing various sectors off the list for who could do their job remotely, um, it, it's actually easy to see why you would suddenly get down to that number um so i mean to give the example that you had about uh you know warehousing or whether you're in a retail environment i mean these are segments of the economy that employ you know tens hundreds of thousands of of canadians and so um i think when you start going through the actual sector by sector list you do realize that there are those those challenges there um in the same way too for example that a lot of the i guess you could say um Uh, ways of doing business are not easily adaptable to a virtual format. And we've heard that from companies that are particularly doing business development with new clients for the first time. And being able to have those face-to-face interactions, albeit with a mask, is still quite important because you want to build up that trust for a business relationship. This is not a new phenomenon,
0: by the way. Of course, we know that there have been people that have been working from home for quite some time, uh, in a variety of different capacities. I guess depending on the relationship and the programs that are available uh, from the workplace. But uh, for many of us, uh, this is a first-time thing right now. Uh, You know, actually working from home in situations like this, where we heretofore had not done this. Uh, Are we holding up? I mean, this is this is it's not new anymore. I mean, it's become old hat for many of us, but it still
1: is different. Yeah, so actually, what I'll say is kind of just going back to what I said a moment ago, particularly around folks that are in the business development and, you know, sales and marketing functions of companies. That is one segment that we've heard about time and time again, where, again, they just they need to have that face-to-face interaction with people, especially if they're having business being done for the first time. And that is not easily uh, transferable into a virtual, uh, you know, format. And even too, when you're talking, for example, about border restrictions and being able to travel internationally, companies that are trying to export or that are in the exporting business, um, they're having those challenges that they're having to work through, which are quite uh, difficult. Uh, and, and those numbers, as we talked about, are, are rather
0: interesting that, uh, you know, we're, we're getting used to this sort of situation, but uh, the, the, the rise in the number of people uh, working remotely right now is actually only from 23% up to 36%. And I, I as we mentioned, I, I share that that'll, feeling that a lot of other folks said that i thought the number was going to be a lot higher but we seem to be accommodating this uh what about those who are still in in the work environment uh, whether it's an officer as you say it could be a plant it could be a warehousing situation or stuff uh the concern obviously and the concern why a lot of us i guess are not in those environments right now is is safety public safety uh you know taking the proper precautions making sure that uh you know that, that we're not exposing ourselves to the virus in situations like this uh now i know of most companies and i know a lot of your member companies have, have worked very, very diligently to try to accommodate that. Uh, do the people in those environments, the workers in those environments uh, feel as if they're, they're safe at work?
1: Yeah, I think the folks that are actually in those environments uh, feel rel- relatively safe. Now, there is some interesting data that we'll actually be coming out with towards the end of this week to give you a little, a little bit of a teaser that talks about the different measures that companies are taking. And so the measures that make people most comfortable are the ones that we are talking about most and that is you know social distancing you know masks reducing capacity and and numbers in the workplace Um, there's less familiarity with things like rapid testing and this is something that we're trying to get uh, more and more jurisdictions across the country behind to be able to support small and medium-sized businesses being able to take those measures uh, to have the workplace safer and I said we'll have some stuff coming out later this week around that Um, one of the things that we did find interesting from the data is People who commute in on public transit, I think, do feel an understandable level of hesitancy around that, mm-hmm. um, given, again, you are in fairly close quarters with people uh, that you know are not inside your, your household bubble. And so there definitely is a preference, I think, for folks to be able to drive into the workplace so they don't have to have that risk of exposure. Mm-hmm. And the
0: workplace environments themselves, of course, as you say, a lot of these companies have, have well spent a considerable amount of money uh, for things like plexiglass shields and things of this nature, uh, PPE, are, are, and which is only going to assuage, I think, a lot of the concerns that people had about this and uh, and the hygiene that goes on. I mean, a lot of that is individual. We get that the washing of hands and the social distancing and wearing the mask in situations like that. But the the actual physical work environment. I mean, we've seen, uh, I guess, the odd time anyway when we've been had insights into class. Rooms and some of the working environments, uh, you know, where there used to be ten desks, there are now four, maybe three, whatever the case might be, uh, to create that sort of separation. So there's, a, it, it's, it's new for everybody, and I guess we, we've got to, you know, accommodate the fact that the, the businesses themselves and the people that run those businesses have had to make some huge adjustments here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what we always say, and I know it's cliche, but it's absolutely true is that it is a multi layered approach. And so it's not just what you have plexiglass and hand sanitizer, and you're done, it's the plexiglass, it's the hand sanitizer, it's having regular cleaning and changing your filtration systems. Um, And then one of the new things, as I said a moment ago, is in and around rapid screening, I mean, rapid screening isn't a substitute for the full, you know, PCR test that we know takes 24 hours to get a result back from. But we think rapid testing is a way that can help screen out people that are asymptomatic and so they're reducing, again, another vector for an infectious person to come into the workplace and have an outbreak.
0: Another question that I found fascinating about this is uh, those that are working remotely right now or even doing it on a part time basis. uh the level of concern they have for when they have to go back you know when when the coast is clear so to speak and and you know the judgment is made okay we're going to start bringing people back in Uh, are there
1: some concern is there some trepidation about what that's going to look like and and just how it's going to roll out yeah so i think for those folks there's probably two different things at play one is um in and around the method by which they get into work and so um, you do have a lot of folks that are in office environments who take public transit And so for them, I think, you know, there's understandably a lot of hesitancy. And and you know what, I'll be honest, I'm actually in that category as well. I take public transit to work. And I'm not exactly enthusiastic about the prospect of sitting, you know, in a crowded space on on a Mm -hmm. bus like I would every morning in the pre COVID world. The other thing I would say to her folks who work from home is they haven't had a chance to see these measures. And so when they, you know, hear people like us talking on the radio, or when they see pictures on Twitter, it still is a little bit abstract for them. But when I've gone into the office a couple of times to, you know, pick up things and you see the measures that have been put in place, you actually do have a level of reassurance that, hey, you know what, my employer does take this seriously and they actually do want to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, we had a brief example of that, of course, because, you know, from the time that this whole thing started, uh, there was a period of two or three weeks before we decided, okay, fine, this is the way it's going to be. So you are in that work environment and uh, let's face it, there was a lot of fear and trepidation about that. We didn't know what we were dealing with, you know, wash your hands. I mean, people were spraying Lysol over just about every and everybody uh, to try to do that and and I'm, I'm not sure just how those folks I've only been in my office once in the last 14 months uh, to pick something up and it was actually on a Sunday morning when I knew there wasn't gonna be anybody else in there anyway uh, so it, you wonder what the environment's like and just what the the mindset is of the people that are I guess used to that now just as we're trying to get used to working from home uh, they're trying to get used to working in, in this relatively new environment now with all these things the separations and the plexiglass and, and the sorts of things that are going on these 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 days, Uh, it's it's nobody gets out of this uh, unscathed, do they? I mean, this is this is going to leave a mark on all of
1: us. Yeah, and I think if you put yourself in the shoes of the person out there who, um, you know, they have lots of stuff going on in their lives on a day-to-day basis, it's hard to keep up with all the guidance and the changing sort of you know scientific evidence and everything else that's coming out. I mean, even just over the weekend, watching the U.S. Center for Disease Control publishing a study. That actually said um you know the technical word is, is fomite but essentially surface transmission isn't actually mm-hmm. as, as great as we thought it was and so the sort of tagline and some of the media commentary was, we can stop all wiping our groceries down and focus on masks and, and ventilation because that's really the main means of transmission but it can be really overwhelming for folks to have the stuff being constantly barraged at us and so really what we're going to be talking about later this week is how to make things as simple as possible for businesses to reopen safely and get folks back into the workplace who do want to be there there's two levels to this. There's obviously the, the
0: employer and, and the concerns they've got. I mean, because you know, they're the ones that are also looking at the bottom line and seeing the impact that the pandemic and lockdowns have had on, on those businesses uh, from a financial standpoint and, and, and an economic standpoint. But is there concern and trepidation among the employees in situations like this too, Mark, to say what is that normal going to look like when we finally do go back into that environment? Uh, you know, whether it's dealing with the public, and, and let's face it, there's some concern about that, you know, all of a sudden we're going to let people into the stores again, oh my God, uh, you know, or the, into the restaurant or whatever the case might be, or visitors, you know, clients coming into offices and things of this nature. Is, is there some concern about how that's going to look and how and what kind of an impact that's going to have?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I typically think of it as being a, a two-step process. I mean, there's the world that we're in now until we reach herd immunity at some point. And so I think a lot of those questions people are going to have around, well, what happens if I'm in customer facings? What happens if I've had only one dose of the vaccine instead of two, two doses? Am I going to have to be able to show uh, some kind of, you know, vaccination status to be able to go in somewhere? There's a whole sort of set of really tricky questions. Um, one of the other pieces that we're starting to think about, and I know a lot of our members are, is even once we reach herd immunity, what does that sort of permanent new steady state look like? Are we going to have to have vaccine or other forms of health credentials as the new way of doing business rather than being a temporary measure? I don't know what that looks like. And unfortunately, in Canada, it's even more complicated by the fact that you have, you know, whole sort of, you know, different provinces doing their own different things. And what we really need to make sure we have is a coherent approach, certainly for companies that operate across provincial uh, boundaries
0: the vaccination program is an interesting uh, wild card in this whole thing too uh when we do get to that point where we're going to start thinking about bringing some people back in and, and you're right it's not just going to be okay as of next monday uh, it's all back to normal 100 percent capacity and 100 uh you know population going back in uh it's it's going to have to be done in a stage as we understand that but when you talk to your members
1: about this is there some concern now that that maybe
0: vaccinations have to be mandatory before you're allowed back into the workplace
1: I, I think people recognize that um, having vaccines be mandatory is likely going to be a, a bridge too far. I mean, there will be folks that have medical reasons or, you know, reasons of personal conscience that they're not going to be able to, to do it. And so um, we want to encourage vaccines. I mean, you know, I'm unabashedly in, in favor of people getting the COVID-19 va- vaccine, um, but probably we're going to be going down into a world where, how is it that having a vaccine might sort of facilitate ease of access um, versus people who don't? So, for example, if you have a vaccine, would you have to, um, or sorry, more correctly, if you have a vaccine, would you be exempted from having to do a rapid screening test before going into a, a sports stadium, for instance? Mm-hmm. I think those are probably more the types of questions that people are going to be looking at going forward, rather than saying if you don't have a vaccine, you can't do something, because then you do have a lot of other, you know, legal and liability issues that um, companies will be facing.
0: Well, and I guess there's no sense of urgency because, I mean, the the interesting statistic here is that most of you members seem to think it's going to be at least the end of this year uh, before we even have to face some of these challenges uh, and and go to that next phase. So uh, I guess we just need to hunker down and continue doing and uh, roll the sleeves up when it's our turn.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I would say that actually that although, you know, folks might not think we're going back to normal until 2022, um, we do need to start thinking now about the, the new normal and what that mm-hmm. looks like, particularly if you're talking about companies that have to implement IT systems changes. Um, these things take time to do. And so it actually is critical to start the work now rather than, than later. And I think this is something that we've seen, for example, in our you know pandemic response where we were slow out of the gate because we didn't really have a sufficient plan ready to go on on day one. And the longer we wait to have one on the back end, the longer the economic recovery is going to take
0: absolutely listen it's fascinating to get this stuff and and we really appreciate the fact that that you guys at the chamber uh, have continued to have your finger on the pulse of businesses uh, you know we hear statistics etc but uh you know to actually get a, a gut feeling for how people are doing and and how they're looking forward to how they're going to come out of this thing is 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 very very important information to have uh stay well mark I, I will talk again because I know you're going to continue with the polling and I'm sure we'll have more conversations about this down the road thanks all look forward to being back soon Take care. Mark Agnew, of course, Vice President of uh, Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. That's on their webpage, by the way, if you want to go and check that out. And there's some interesting statistics on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.